So here we are now looking at the second of our series in Leviticus. My name is Mike Sherbin. I'm the pastor of Watch It Baptist Church. And we have previously taken one uh, sort of introductory look at what Leviticus tells us. And this is our second go. Uh, you're watching the Watch It Baptist Church YouTube channel. My hope is that you knew that already before you clicked on us. But it's great to have you with us for this. Just wanted to take an opportunity to recap, first of all, where we've got to so far. And my hope is that um, the the little uh, insert screen that's up. Oh, how do I do this? Not that way. That way. That one. That, that, that one. That one really help us with uh, what's going on and perhaps give you a little bit of uh, focus at moments when there's a lot to take in. So what have we looked at so far? Well, uh, you're going to find that I dip down sometimes because I'm scrolling through some notes that I want to be able to keep on top of. And the first thing that we, we remember is that uh, what we've discovered from the context, the literary context of Leviticus, its place in the wider picture of the Pentateuch and what happens within it as the story goes into, into a centre of a centre of a centre, is that this is a story of God's people. And it's a story all the way from Genesis to Deuteronomy. That's the Pentateuch, those first five books of the Old Testament. And in that uh, bigger story, God makes a way for his people to approach him. God takes the initiative to reconcile himself to his people. Leviticus is a story of that way, a way in which um, God can be approached and a way in which uh, people, humanity, can dwell with him. So it's a book about a whole nation learning to be disciples. It's about learning how to enter the Father's presence and how to remain there. It's about learning how to walk faithfully with God. And, and we remember the last time that Enoch was someone who did ex exactly that. And we read a little bit, tiny bit of his story in Genesis. And this is also exactly what Jesus tells his disciples to do. So this is not uh, a new and different thing for God to ask of his people. It also means that Leviticus is not an impenetrable rule book. Rather, it's a, a manual. It's kind of a, a guide for how to accept the invitation to walk with God and then go and do that walk with him. Jesus says, come follow me, be with me and learn my voice. The similarities between Jesus' words and the intention of Leviticus is quite striking. If you want more detail on what we covered in that first session, I recommend you go and check out the first uh, Leviticus teaching that you will find on our YouTube channel. I'd also encourage you to read the book, read Leviticus. It's uh, not the easiest book you ever will have read. It's probably not anyone's first choice uh, in the Bible. But I'd encourage you to read it anyway and try not to take on too much at once. There are, there are 10 chapters in a kind of a reasonably obvious uh, first section. Uh, try not to take on too much at once, but maybe reading those ten, 10 chapters over the course of a week might be an appropriate way forward. Not least because next time we we, uh, we look at this book, we're going to be looking at those first few chapters. And just, just for reference as well, I see my job in this set of teaching, with Leviticus being the kind of book it is, with the reputation it's got, I see my role as kind of um, uh, watering the ground. Uh, we want to be able to dig into Leviticus, but if we if it stays dry, then it's hard to get the fork in and, and work the ground at all. If it's if it's wet ground, 
then we're able to, to get the fork in and turn it over. And so part of what we've done last time and we're doing this time is providing that kind of watering process so that we can dig in, we can get our fork through uh, what was otherwise quite dry. Uh, perhaps it's not the most perfect analogy, but I think it has its uses. So what are we looking at this time around? Well, last time we looked at literary context. How does the literary structure of Leviticus and of the wider Pentateuch inform how we read? And this time we're looking at narrative context. So how does the story up to this point inform what we read in Leviticus and what it tells us? And here we are at Leviticus. The immediate context is the end of Exodus. But the bigger context is everything that's happened up to this point, all the way from Genesis 1. But today's exploration, if you like, is, is about understanding that narrative context, seeing Leviticus as belonging to the bits of the story that came before it. It's not a separate thing. It's not a, you know, it has a reputation for being dry, but it's not a self-contained book of rules. It's part of a bigger narrative. As I said, next week, we'll dig into some of that Leviticus text itself. But for now, we're looking at this second bit of context, literary context last week, narrative context this week. Let's just change up in the top corner there. The first part of what we're looking at today, we're going to be asking the question, what's the point of humanity? So we're looking at Genesis for this first section. And we're actually going to straight away look to answer that question, but then we'll look to explore how we know what that answer is. So the point of humanity is to be in relationship with God. Now, how do we know this? Well, importantly, we know it from the structure of the creation story. Creation is set up as a, a provision for humanity, as a companion and as a signpost too. And the Sabbath, that, that seventh stage in the creation story, is the climax of creation. Now, I'll admit that um, I haven't always thought this was the case. I think for, uh, for many of us, perhaps, there's this sense that the sixth day of creation, the last, the last day in which God did stuff, that's the kind of climax, that's the pinnacle. But it's not actually the case. The Sabbath, that day of rest, is the climax and note how we know this so in the in the original hebrew the first sentence of this account of creation right at the beginning of genesis 1 is seven words long the account of creation is seven paragraphs long the account and ends with the seventh day and in that seventh day we have a threefold emphasis on it being the seventh day all of that points to the seventh day being the one that's the most significant it's the it's the pièce de résistance, maybe. It's it's um, I don't know. It's it's the glorious culmination of what God is doing in creation. Day seven, not day six, is the climax, which provides humanity with the space and the time to be with God, the Creator. The Sabbath is designed not just for uh, recharging your batteries, but for the presence of God to be something that can be enjoyed and participated in. Let's have a little look uh, here. I'll change that screen up in the corner. Oh, we got past that one, there we go. Leviticus 26, 11 to 12 says this, I will put my dwelling place among you 
and I will not abhor you. I will walk among you and be your God and you will be my people. This is the revealing. And it's not the only time he does it, but it's the revealing of God's intention, God's purpose, God's desire. This is what he means to accomplish. To dwell among humanity. And not to abhor people. Not to be distant from them or, or to, to avoid them or ignore them. But to walk among them. Now, um, it's important probably um, that we consider as well why God might do that. And, and in doing so, we need to have a quick little think about God's character. And I'm going to move that slide on again. That's a picture of Aslan. And I'm not sure how clearly you can see the writing in the bottom left hand corner. But it's to do with that thing that, that Mr. Beaver says in The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. He's asked if Aslan is safe and he says, of course, he isn't safe. He's not tame, but he is good. And we need to understand God in similar terms. He's not safe. He's not domesticated. He's not there to be manipulated or moved around according to our whims, but he is good. And exploring what that goodness means and what it does for us is important as we seek to understand God's character. So the first question I'd encourage you to think about is this. Does God have limits? I think it's tempting to say no. Of course he doesn't. He can do anything. But on another level, he must have limits because there are lots of things he doesn't do. What do I mean by this? Well, he's limited by his character. He's good, right? So it's impossible for him to do evil, isn't it? That's something he can't do because his character doesn't allow it. He's kind, yes? So that means he cannot be mean. He's faithful. So he's not capable of betrayal. God works according to his principles. And that's really where I want us to take this idea. God has limitations because of his character. The important thing to remember there is what his character is and what his character then feeds in terms of what he does. God absolutely is what he does. He works according to his principles. So um, he does what he is, meaning that when he creates creation so that he could dwell with humanity, that tells you what his character is. He wishes to dwell with humanity. He longs to dwell with humanity. He set up his covenants so that he could walk among us. And in Jesus, he actually walked among us. And as the spirit that Jesus promised after uh, in, in the room with the disciples before, uh, after the Passover and before he went to uh, be arrested and crucified, in, in that moment, he promises the spirit. And by the spirit, God continues to walk among us day by day. That's the intention of God and, I would say, the purpose of creation. And this matters on many levels. The one to stop and look at now is creation. So creation echoes that intention of God to dwell with humanity. It reflects it and it refracts it and it glows with it. Let's dip into historical context again. In the ancient Near East, uh, which is the, the, the kind of geographical region where this all this stuff gets played out. There was a link in understanding between temple and cosmos. And this wasn't a link that was just about what the Jewish people did. It was not just about Israel's life. It was, it was a common understanding. It was commonplace and expected and normal to think in these terms. There was a link between the temple and the cosmos. Understanding this 
is is vital not least because it reminds us of the importance of the context when we when we read the bible we need to understand what its first audience understood when it was written so ancient near eastern people would assume that a temple would be a representation of creation and that has an impact for us because it means when we look at architecture we look at the way the temple is built later on and when we look at the way the tabernacle is built in exodus in, in a little while we're able to see that the architecture plays a big part in representing what creation is the tabernacle that god designs in exodus is supposed to be an echo of the cosmos and this we've seen uh, we've just been saying that creation is something that's in place so that god can dwell with humanity so the temple has to reflect not just what creation is like but what it's for the creation has to somehow uh, bounce around the idea that god has created creation in order to be with people it's interesting that when we look at the beginning of genesis and we see how creation happened we get this phrase uh, ruach elohim which means the wind of god and, and or the spirit of god and, and that's what was in play when creation happened. Uh, the, the old version that I know better is the spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters and God said, let there be light. That spirit was essential in creation being creation. When the tabernacle comes to be created in Exodus, God gives his spirit to a man called Belazel and, and his team, but specifically to Belazel. He says, I will give my spirit and, and wisdom as well to this guy and he will look after the, the sort of artisan work the, the creativity the, the craftsmanship of building this tabernacle so the spirit of god is at work in creation and the spirit of god is at work in the tabernacle that echo of the cosmos there are other ways in which there are echoes too you get details such as the sun moon and stars represented as sacred lamps the lamps in the tabernacle and the lamps in the firmament echo each other. There are lamps in the tabernacle, which is like the sanctuary of the universe. There are parallels between the tabernacle, which is later translated into the temple, parallels between that and creation. It's going to uh, stuck a lot of, of references up there. You're not going to be able to look through all of them now, but. Um, it, it's worth highlighting that in Psalm 104 and in Job 9 verse 8 and in Isaiah 40 22 creation is described as a tabernacle and in Job 26 verse 11 Genesis 7 11 and Psalm 78 verse 23 creation is described as a house established by God there is parallel it's it's identified in scripture but more than that the tabernacle instructions mirror the seven-day establishment of creation. So all the way from Exodus 25 to 31, there are seven speeches by God. And they are they are the seven speeches that are designed to give instruction for how the tabernacle should be built. Six of them relate to how the thing's put together, and the seventh relates to Sabbath rest. The whole thing ties in very tightly. And Leviticus is this book that talks about what happens as people approach the tabernacle, the place where God is. It's what happens as the people of God enter into the presence of God. They get to be where God is. They enjoy dwelling with him, which was his intention. 
So we get this seventh day thing again. In the description of how the tabernacle is built, just as in the beginning. And I wanted to, to highlight something that Abraham Heschel, I think I've pronounced that right, he's an American Polish rabbi, has died now, but he wrote this. What is the Sabbath? The Sabbath is an ascent to the summit. Now hear that for what it is, a declaration that the creation of a moment for God to dwell with us intimately and sacrificially is not just a thing he's done, it's who he is. The Sabbath is an ascent to the summit. It is a, a, a created set aside time and place for us to be in the presence of God. Sabbath is our moment to enjoy the presence of God for which he created us and by which we are blessed. I'm going to quote um, Abraham Michelle again. Last in creation, first in intention, the Sabbath is the end of the creation of heaven and earth. Sabbath is the goal of creation. That is what Genesis 1, 1 through to 2, 3 tells us. That as God created, he was moving towards an end purpose. And that end purpose was Sabbath. And the, the purpose that Sabbath realises is the time and place when God and humanity dwell together. Each day in creation finishes with movement. There is a kind of, you know, there was evening and there was morning and that was, and, and so on. And, and that means that in lots of ways, the whole thing is in motion the whole time, right up until the point where the seventh day happens and then it stops. And it stops simply for the reason that God wishes to dwell with humanity. Creation is also full of signposts to God. You, you know, um, uh, day four of creation where God makes sun, moon and stars. Yeah? That, that's the middle of the journey. It's day four. It's not one, two, three or five, six, seven. It's the middle. It's day four. And it's the middle of the journey from start to Sabbath. And it sets out this creation of sun, moon and stars, sets out the rhythm and cycle of days and years. And those lights are also designed to fix the annual days of worship festivals. You, you may find in your NIV or other Bibles that you read that there's a reference to how those lights will govern the seasons. And in, in um, doing my sort of preparation for this, uh, this talk, I came across uh, a commentator who said, do you know what? Seasons is not the best translation of that word. The best translation of that word is, is cultic festivals or worship festivals. The purpose of sun, moon and stars is in part to bring people back to points in the year where they gather in order to worship God for who he is, because creation signposts them to do that. There are moments in the year that are designed to be reference points for gathering in God's presence and worshipping him. I will take a moment here just to digress slightly and, and talk about humanity's rule over creation, because we're in creation anyway. We'll, we'll have a quick look at that. Um, the idea is that, that God put humanity in dominion over, over creation. But he did that not to use them, but to shepherd them. The purpose of creation was never God handing over ownership. He didn't say, I don't want this anymore. You have it. He said, creation has a purpose and it's to dwell with me. And, and so humanity, what I want you to do is take some responsibility with me for how creation is blessed. And so our role is to enable creation to fulfil its potential, to receive, for it to receive the blessing that God intends for it to receive and for us to be part of how that happens. This, this is explored elsewhere. God tells his people that they are to be um, a light to the nations. 
a, a guidance for people to encounter God by being the kind of human beings that he designed humans to be. We are designed to be people who are lights to creation, not just not just the peoples of, but the whole of. We are to bring the same kind of creation, blessing to creation, that God brings to us, caring for it in such ways that it might achieve uh, all of its potential and um, fulfil its, its ultimate beauty. And when we don't do that, we are denying the purpose for which God put us here. The regression finished. Back to God's intention. It's worth noting that the Sabbath day is the only thing sanctified in the whole of Genesis. So this place where God and humanity are designed to dwell together, where the purpose is for us with God to occupy the same space and simply enjoy each other's company. That's the only thing in the whole of Genesis that is sanctified. Sanctified meaning set apart and made holy. Think about it. A book that tells us about Enoch, who walked with God faithfully, about Noah, who survived the flood, about promises to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, of, of the, um, the Jesus-like character of, of Joseph, who rescues his people from abandonment and, and destruction. And in all of this, it is only, only the Sabbath that is made holy. God says, be holy as I am holy. And he is, in that sense, in those words, inviting us to share in his holiness as we dwell with him. Be, be as sanctified and set apart as I am. Be with me in the specialness. This invitation to holiness, to sanctification, finds its answer in Sabbath. God says, effectively, be holy, be with me, because I am where holy is. I, I am the expression of holy. You are with me, you are holy. Be holy as I am holy. It's an invitation. Enjoy Sabbath with me. Enjoy dwelling with me. Creation is a move towards this sanctified moment. The whole six days lead up to this sanctified moment. God makes humanity able to relate to him. That's the importance of the like us bit. So Genesis 1, 27, 26, rather, when he says, um, let us make God in our own image. Let's make, let's make humanity in our own image. Um, He's saying, let's make humanity like us with, with the capabilities that we have to, to steward creation, to reason, to engage in relationship, to, to know God. The culmination of creation is not humanity. It's relationship between humanity and God that the Sabbath absolutely describes. There's a guy called Westerman who put it like this. Man separated from God has not only lost God, but also the purpose of his humanity. Man is not the goal of God's creation. The goal is the Sabbath. It's rest and it's dwelling. And it is God's determination to draw us back to himself because that was his intention. He is what he does and he does who he is. And his character absolutely shapes what drives him. So... We are special. We are created to be in the image of God. We are created to be capable of relationship with our creator. An abundant life is found in engagement with the divine. Jesus said, I've come that they might have life and life to the full. This is the abundance of that life. Humanity's purpose is to share in the presence of God. And that purpose is made possible afresh through the tabernacle. Well, that's Genesis. I want to take a look at Exodus now. 
There we go. So, uh, in Scripture, we find that um, there is a poetical understanding in play a lot of the time. This is not surprising, given that we are talking about a culture that communicated uh, mostly through storytelling uh, and song, communicated its history by telling each other its history down the generations. The best way to remember things like that is to write them and sing them in ways that are memorable. So poetry becomes important. And in that poetical understanding, towards God is up. The mountain of the Lord is referred to a lot. And away from God is down, down to chaos, uh, particularly waters of chaos. Water at the sea represents that chaos and ultimately down to Sheol, which is the place of the dead. Psalm 18 describes rescue from the waters and to the heights of the Temple Mount. Noah was delivered through the waters and finished up on a mountain. And other places, Jonah, for example, is rescued from waters and Israel's deliverance is through the Red Sea waters. And in its way, baptism also is a rescue through water. And this is the heart of the good news, that there is a rescue. There is a rescue out of waters down here and rescue to the place where God is, which is up on the mountain of God. And this is the heart of the good news, that rescue. The foundation of our relationship with God is that he wants there to be a relationship. The possibility of our relationship with God being restored when it's broken is his action. The good news is God coming to rescue us and collect us. Not just telling us he's made a way, but actually coming to walk us along that way. The fact that we need this good news is the result of an opening chasm. It'd be great if we didn't need this good news. It would be fantastic if we didn't need to be rescued. The fact is we do. And understanding how that chasm came to be where it is is a big part of understanding why Leviticus is as significant as it is, why it's as joyous as it is. The right place for us to be is Eden. That's where God created us to enjoy his presence. The heart of God's creation is a place where we dwell with him and he with us. Eden then is the heart of creation's purpose. It's a place set apart for us to be where God is. Now that means that Adam is like a high priest, or because they were the high priest is like Adam. He is one who's able to enter the most holy place, the Eden, if you like, of God's immediate presence. Interestingly, what well, Adam is in Genesis 2, told to worship and obey, priests are given very similar instructions. And actually, so are we. 1 Peter 2 verse 9 echoes Exodus 19 in calling disciples of Jesus a royal priesthood. Now in Genesis, and we are in Genesis, I may have said we're in Exodus earlier, but we're not in Genesis. In Genesis 3, we see Adam exiled. He's exiled from the garden. And as quickly as Genesis 4, we see Cain exiled from Eden. There is... There is a significance to this. Uh, when Adam is first exiled, he's exiled not from the whole of Eden, but from the garden. And then later, he's exiled from Eden into the land of wandering. It's called the land of Nod, but Nod just means wandering. And then in Genesis 6, we see the sons of God exiled from creation. So the beginning of Genesis 6, which is the, the account that we know of as the Noah story, uh, at the beginning of Genesis 6, we see referred to the sons of God. And uh, as Genesis 6 goes on, we hear how... Um, the sons of God uh, depart from the way of living that God would choose. 
and they end up in a position where God says there's, there's only one righteous man left and that's Noah and I'll preserve him and his family. And so the, the, the flood, the, the deluge story, that flood story is a further exile. It's, it's the sons of God being exiled from creation. That they're no longer there. Everything that follows that departure from Eden, that expulsion from Eden, is part of the same drama, the story of a widening chasm between God and humanity. And again and again, humanity chooses to make a name for itself. Actually, when Cain decides to build a city in Genesis 4, he does so because he wants to be remembered. He wants some sense of immortality beyond his lifetime. He names the city after his son. And it's just humanity keeps on doing this. It keeps on looking to um, a kind of life in self-fulfillment rather than life in all its fullness. Now, at this point, we're in a story of ever-growing distance from God and it continues. And each time humanity makes choices, it seems to take the, those choices seem to take humanity away from God. After the flood, there is a scattering of humanity after the Tower of Babel. And it, even the unity that humanity used to have is gone. They're now far from God and they're far from each other. And where does this leave God? On what basis can relationship with humanity be continued? I think it's from this point that the narrative changes in character. And actually it does. You get you get a kind of bum de bum de bum de bum approach to storytelling from Genesis um, sort of 4 to 11. Things happen um, in, in quite a sharp and, uh, and quick way. And then, and then from Exodus 12 onwards we start hearing the story of Abraham it becomes a story about the restoration of humanity to the presence of this loving and holy God ultimately God chooses the cultus as the means by which humanity will again be able to enter the presence of God that Sabbath purpose to dwell together ultimately God chooses this Cultus. And cultus is a is a word that you'll find a lot if you're looking at um, uh, the history of Israel's worship. Uh, cultus or Celtic just is to do with systems for religious worship. Now, through that system, God grants access to His holy place, and, and He designs the means for it to happen. As He designed the Ark for Noah, so He designs the Tabernacle for the people of Israel. But despite God beginning to open up this road through promises to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, there's still a widening of the chasm. Ezekiel, who came along a lot later, described it like this. You were in Eden. You were on the holy mountain of God. But, but it all went wrong. That was Ezekiel 28, 13 to 14. So while Jacob experiences the threshold of God's place, an access point between humanity and God, there is still a direction away from God that runs through the rest of Genesis. In Genesis, we see movement away from God, from from um, Eden to exile. So from Eden's exile to the flood exile of Noah, from from the Eden exile to the exile after Babel, from uh, from the Eden exile to the exile to Egypt, as Joseph uh, brings his family down to Egypt. Notice in the Bible that going to Egypt is always down, and that's not because it's south; it's because Egypt is uh, metaphorically a place of um, of death and, and absence of God. But the whole thing, the whole of Genesis is a study in humanity's movement away from fullness of life and fullness of life and towards separation from the God who created humanity to be with it. 
So part three. And here we really are in Exodus. There's a word that we come across uh, in Exodus. Actually, not just in Exodus. The word Hebrew word is abad. And again, I hope I've done justice to the pronunciation. And it means to serve, kind of means to serve. This verb is, is crucial as we follow the narrative of humanity's reconciliation to God. So Abraham's abad in Eden was worship. But Abraham's abad outside the garden was toil. It was a question of what kind of service it was. It was in in the garden, his abad was about his relationship with God. But outside the garden, it was about his relationship with the land. God's people, the Israelites, go from abad in Egypt as slaves to abad in Sinai as worship. Can you see how that theme balances itself through? Adam goes from worship to toil and the people of Israel go from slavery to worship. Worship is 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 a bad with God. Slavery and toil without him. Israel also goes from building Mishkan or possibly Mishkan, which are cities of storage, to building uh, when they're in Egypt, to building Mishkan, the house of God, the tabernacle. Same word used, but in different contexts. It brings a very different meaning. And also importantly, the word Pharaoh, so this is the, the, the ruler of Egypt, the word Pharaoh means great house. So Israel swaps the rule of one great house to the building and service of another great house. It's from the great house of oppression to the great house of presence, a loving presence of God. At the beginning of Exodus, humanity has kind of forgotten God. He's, he's not un, completely unheard of to them, but there's not a knowledge of him. There's an estrangement and a lack of understanding. And God will deal with both. God always takes the initiative to deal with both. We're not capable of bridging that gap, but God always will. He will reveal himself. So his actions will mean that he is known. He will be understood for who he is and what he stands for through what he does. He, God is what he does. His character um, defines what he does. He will reveal himself so he is known through the deliverance of the Exodus, the people coming out of that nation and out of that slavery. He will bring the people to himself by physical travel across the wilderness and by holy welcome through this tabernacle. I know we've referred to it a couple more times and we will come back to it again. The Exodus is a crucial transforming journey of learning who God is and trusting his invitation to be in his presence. The Exodus isn't just a physical journey, it's a transformational journey of understanding. At the start, they don't really understand God. And God doesn't start off by saying, look, you need to get your heads around what I'm like. What he starts with is saying, I'm going to show you what I can do. Then you will know what I'm capable of. And then I'm going to invite you to dwell with me. That first section of Exodus concerns the knowledge of God, of Yahweh. What is he like? What can he do? How does he work? Where does he stand? The method of Israel's redemption is something that reveals himself. It's, it's not just mechanical. It is revealing. So we get to see, as the Israelites did, and as the other nations did too, we get to see God as creator with power over nature. We get to see God uh, as 
gaining fame. He's recognised around the world for what he does. When when the Israelites arrive uh, in the Promised Land, uh, the people of Jericho already know what their God is like. God is known as dwelling among his people through the tabernacle. And as Israel learns who God is, it can move to the next section, not just the knowledge of God, but the dwelling with God. In Exodus, Passover is established and enables humanity to regain its holy status. They become set apart again. In Exodus, Sinai is reached, the mountain of God, a place of his presence, a place where God can be met. And Moses goes and does this. The mountain is a symbol of approach to God. Moses ascends to represent the people to God. And Moses descends to represent God to the people. Following the golden calf incident, Moses stands in the centre representing both to each other. And actually in that moment, Moses offers to be blotted out himself so that Israel might not be. His mediation, his standing between, his representing one to the other is crucial. Without it, Israel would not have made it. Mediation that he offers isn't just prayer, it's self-giving as well. And there is a crucial point where Moses says no to God's idea that God would clear the way for the people to enter the promised land, but he would not go with them. That was God's uh, fallback plan. They, they'd let him down. He said, I'll, I'll wipe you out. And then he goes, OK, I won't wipe you out, but I, I will send you and make it possible for you to be in the promised land, but I won't go with you. And in mediation, Moses declines that suggestion. He knows that's not the intended way forward. The question really is, will humanity seek contentment outside the garden, outside the presence of God? And Moses says he will not accept this idea. He mediates for the whole nine yards. Better, he says, to have God's presence in the wilderness than to have the riches of the land and God absent. In this moment, Moses grasps what God's intention is ultimately and he fights for it. God's intention is to be with humanity in creation relating to, to each other. Genesis, as we've seen, saw that dream wither, exile after exile. Exodus sees that dream given light and water and a whole shed load of compost. It's revived. It gets green shoots. It starts to flourish again. And in reviving this dream, God humbles himself by coming to dwell among his people. Remember that on the mountain, as, you know, the, the people all gather around it and Moses goes up on the mountain. They don't even dare come to the come to the foot of the mountain for the holiness of God will, de will destroy them. But in reviving this dream, God humbles himself and comes to dwell among his people. It's his intention that they should dwell with him, but that's no longer possible unless he makes the first move. He will come and dwell among them. And he comes and does that through the tabernacle. I know we've talked about it before. I'm coming back to it. And he dwells among the tabernacle. Now, priests have a particular role with the tabernacle. But the tabernacle is not just about... God meeting with one or two select people. It's about dwelling among them all. He has shown his willingness to bring his presence to his people through pillars of cloud and fire as they've escaped from Egypt. He has gone before them as cloud and as fire. And those, those symbols of what 
of how God is present, they will come back again and again through Israel's history and, and, and through the church's history too. But the tabernacle goes one further than just I'm present with you. It, it goes to dwell with. That Sabbath intention. The story of Genesis and Exodus telling us that there was an intention, that it got broken. And that through the end of Exodus, we get the development of the tabernacle. And then in Leviticus, we will see how that tabernacle is used. How that cultus is developed so that God can dwell again with his people and they with him. His passion, God's passion, leads him to make a way for his people to dwell with him. Because redemption's purpose is creation's purpose. Redemption doesn't do something new. Jesus' arrival doesn't do something new. It takes the original idea and it goes back and says, we're going to do this and we're going to make it work. Redemption's purpose is creation's purpose. That purpose is to dwell with God in the house of God. How many Psalms, like we said last week, how many Psalms have as their, this is the thing I'm looking for, to dwell in the house of the Lord? So Leviticus, the reason why it's so important is because of these two things, cultus and tabernacle. In Exodus, God designs and describes a building. He only does this twice in the whole of the Pentateuch. God only twice describes the design for how something should be built and it's this tabernacle and the ark that Moses floats away on. The tabernacle's job is to recreate Eden. Remember we said earlier on how the, the purpose of temples was to, the, the understood, absolutely assumed purpose of temples was to recreate the cosmos. The tabernacle does that. The tabernacle's job is to recreate Eden, to be a place that stands as a reminder of God's intention and his presence, his presence with his people. The Sabbath intention of creation is revived in the development of the tabernacle because it recreates Eden. Architectural details recreate the cosmos. There are lamps like the lamps of the sun, moon and stars. There are architectural details that recreate the cosmos or at least signpost to it. The echo isn't just of creation, but of the invitation that creation was to dwell with God, to be in his presence. In this moment, he is dwelling with humanity for the first time since Eden. That's what the tabernacle does. The tabernacle is the thing which means that the dwelling of God with humanity is revived. It's, that is seismic in its impact. So, cultic development is the answer to Moses' call and mediation. Moses has spoken to God. So we have we this great chasm open up and then we have this return in Exodus and it, it doesn't all go smoothly. And ultimately Moses says, I know what your intention is, God. Your intention is to dwell with. So let's do that. And he mediates and he makes it possible. And God says, right, we'll build a tabernacle. It's a place where God can dwell with his people. And Leviticus provides structure to go with that building. Leviticus takes that tabernacle, which is an assurance of God's presence, and gives us ways to express, or gives Israel ways to express their willingness to come into uh, the presence of God, to dwell with him and allow him to dwell with them. And that process is expressed through ritual and festival and structured worship. 
remember that at the very beginning uh, day four of creation those lamps are put in the sky and they mark off a rhythm that includes festivals that call the people of God to worship him all this structured stuff isn't to be sneezed at this is liturgy designed by God for God's people to use it's liturgy at its most animated it's liturgy at its most wooden panelled and golden it's it's worship at its most carefully constructed by the creator of all things God creates a structured approach to worship through which he makes himself accessible and through which he might be understood and worshipped and for many of us our relationship with liturgy can be complicated we might see a liturgical approach a structured approach to worship as some kind of second best after all we've got jesus he's present with us now by his spirit and we might therefore say that this structure is not relevant i understand where you're coming from but let's not miss a key point here this this experience of a tabernacle based worship as described in leviticus is god reaching out tabernacle and cultus Tabernacle and structured worship are God making himself accessible and known again and anew. This is the presence of God with his people. And just think what that means. In this tabernacle, our cultus, we have God with us. That is Emmanuel. Now, no one is going to say that tabernacle and cultus is equal to the presence of Jesus. And I'm not suggesting that it is. But it is a big deal. And it is special. And this is God's big step. After exile upon exile, this is his big step in saying, I want you to be present with me and me with you. Leviticus will tell us how Israel could approach and remain with this God who reconciled himself to a self-destructing people. And he did this through the tabernacle, its building and regulations, all the way from the architecture that echoes the created cosmos through to the reasons for various worship practices that God himself specified. And all this structure, all this architecture is God's expression of his love. It really is because his desire to be present among his people is out of his love for them. Don't forget that when God encounters Moses in Exodus 34, he says, the Lord, the Lord, and, des and, and describes himself as slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness. That's how God describes himself to the mediator who becomes Israel's model for entering the presence of God. It is his love that makes him want us to be with him. It is his love that makes him want to be present with us exodus 29 45 to 46 says this i will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar and will consecrate aaron and his sons to serve me as priests then i will dwell among the israelites and be their god they will know that i am the lord their god who brought them up out of egypt so that i might dwell with them i've misread that they will know that i am the lord their god who brought them out of egypt so that i may dwell among them I am the Lord their God. Hear the echo there to the end of well, to John 1, 14. I might dwell among them. Jesus came and moved in, dwelt among us, tabernacled with us. This moment in the history of God's interaction with humanity is also a foretaste of our John 15 reading, um, uh, which I have totally neglected to put up on the screen for you. But there's a, a reading in John 15, it's John 15, 15, um, that says... Um, in which God says, 
Let me just go back on that. This this moment of tabernacle and of consecration and of dwelling with um, is a foretaste of John 15. In this moment, in this tabernacle, Old First Testament moment, God says, we're going to change things up. No longer will you only know me as an almighty God who is out there. Now you will see me as a relational God who dwells with you. The John 15 thing, and I have put it up, it's here. The John 15 thing is Jesus saying, I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends for everything that I learned from my father. I have made known to you. That's the change up. That's not God out there. That's God with us. That's Jesus saying, I have, I have shown you the way to the Father. That's Jesus promising the Spirit so that he will not no longer just dwell with us, but in us. Next time, we'll be looking at the first bits of the Leviticus text. And now I hope we're in a good place to dig in properly. This is a book that is built on God's desire to make a way from reconciliation. It's a book that follows a story of exile after exile and then God's rescue. It's a book that looks to show how the people of God can approach this accessible God. Leviticus then becomes the guidebook for how humanity can approach the God who is present among his people. It's an introduction to meeting the Lord. The book's role as a manual on walking with God is reaffirmed. Here, in Leviticus, is First Testament discipleship. As we close... Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for this incredible book. We thank you for all the ways in which it means so much because of the way that the story has been told up to this point. We thank you that it does not stand alone and that those, those narrative bits of Genesis and Exodus that we're more familiar with, that feel easier to read, that they help us by pointing us to what Leviticus is trying to tell us. And we pray that we would be faithful disciples, learning how to approach and walk with you. Our wonderful Father. And we pray that you keep our ears open and our hearts soft as we seek to learn what Leviticus has to tell us. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit we pray. Amen.